Welcome to the Green Element Podcast, where we meet business leaders and innovators transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable, and in the process, help you on your journey of sustainability. I'm your host, Will Richardson. Today, we are speaking to John Grant, a marketing and innovation consultant, as well as an author of several successful books. John's first book, The New Marketing Manifesto, was named one of the top 10 best business books in 1999. And his most recent book, Greener Marketing, is shortlisted for the Business Book Awards 2021. John is a communication strategist and has worked with an extensive list of high-profile organisations, including the BBC, Café Direct, Ecotricity, Lego, IKEA, as well as the British and Swedish governments. He is also a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts. John, welcome. Thank you. Long introduction. I hope I can live up to it. (laughs) (laughs) It's so so exciting to have you on here. And the reason being, we interviewed John from Don't Cry Wolf a few weeks ago and discussed the proliferation of greenwashing in marketing, comms and the PR industry and how this is increasing in the run-up to COP26. So there's a lot for us to talk about. Um, So before we get started, though, can I ask you about how you went from writing a very successful book, New Marketing Manifesto, to focusing more on sustainability and what brought you into this sector? Yes, very good question. So in the 90s, me and a group of friends had a ad agency uh, and digital agency and all kinds of things agency called St. Luke's. And we were a radical workplace democracy where we had equal shares and we were publishing back then about what we called companies role in society and we had clients including anita roddick back when she was running the body shop and she forced us to do a sustainability audit and i so i had my sort of nose pressed to the glass of sustainability and how it met with marketing about the same time as we were all getting our head around uh, the digital revolution and other things and actually new ways of working. We had one of the first sort of beanbags and hot desking offices in the world and so forth. So we were innovative little hotshop. And I wrote the new marketing manifesto to express a desire for a more human, more authentic, less cling film wrapped style of marketing, which we'd been pioneering and to sort of present my calling card as a consultant going to the world. And since then, I've written eight books, actually, three of them have been directly on the topic of sustainability one other one was post-Arab Spring. I wandered around that region and, and interviewed people there about how culture was changing. Uh, wrote a book mostly based on lifelong learning and the way that we've becoming sort of self-taught. And I tend to pick up. I I am a marketeer and uh, you know communications consultant. But I tend to pick up on what I think are the most important trends that my clients, large and small, are trying to digest. And sustainability has been on that agenda for twenty years. Literally how I got into it was Jonathan Porrick grabbed me almost exactly 20 years ago and some other people in marketing. And there were two like bookend problems between sustainability and marketing. He was quite early in the Forum for the Future journey then and working with big clients like Unilever. And he hit two problems. One was sort of um, greenwash. Uh, and he was constantly worried that he was just giving big, bad corporations license to operate by giving them a nice sort of uh, fig leaf. Um, (laughs) And at the other end was this complete indifference and incomprehension. He would work with uh, a team at Unilever on sustainable pea farming for Findus, or they they started the Marine Stewardship Council. He'd then get to the marketing department and somebody would say, now we researched this last year, people won't pay more for this. 
um, is not relevant to mainstream mums, you know, like, great, we'll put it on the back of the packet sort of thing. And he was really struggling to engage marketers and saw actually a lot of the evils of the world being, you know, driven by overconsumption and, you know, some of the negative, like the shadow of this sort of very designed and marketed world. So he got a group of us together in around 2001. I was also working then with, for instance, IKEA had just done their first sustainability report and was starting to try and work out how to integrate this. And one of my clients was very senior at IKEA and brought me and a copywriter in to help you know, with the creative aspects of communicating sustainability. By about 2006, half the clients I met every week were stuck on it. We had the Al Gore movie, loads of eco-hype. GE spent $100 million on a campaign called Eco-Imagination, mm-hmm. and greenwashing was that. a huge issue back then. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of um, wrote the first book that I wrote on sustainability it was the result of I was doing a workshop with some consultants for Nike and Nike women. And Nike had been in the doghouse because there was that picture of the kid in Pakistan stitching one of their footballs and they'd been attacked by Nomi Klein. And they were known as one of the sort of evil corporations. And they were trying to get back into this space, which they've been very prominent in over the last 15 years. And me and the other consultant who ran a small Sort of sustainability agency disagreed on almost every point of what we were bringing to the workshop and you know for instance her view was they need to keep their head down we're just going to do a bit of stakeholder influencing and sort of buddy up and sort of earn the right to be in the conversation i walked in with a big board that said women run the world <laughs> mm. and um and really just thought that you know with the power of a brand like that we should try and do some social good and engage people and excite a new generation and talk about women and development and you'll know that with actually um the empowerment of women and girls is one of the key climate solutions apart from anything else um so and i i kind of said well there must be that we wanted to take a sort of a 360 view of what's happening at the moment and you know what's working what isn't working what's greenwash who's been doing well and take that to the workshop and i wrote a paper and i i I was chatting to my publisher at the time about a new book and i said well what about this and i said the paper and she said oh yes please and and so i wrote it as a sort of i mean the the core insight was it's sort of like digital marketing It, it kind of depends it's different if you're innocent drinks or a local vegan cafe or HSBC. There isn't one digital marketing. And if you do the wrong sort, you can look too corporate or mm. too flimsy or, or so forth. So um, the center of the first book was a great big grid that said, it depends. It depends if you're trying to improve your reputation, launch innovative products that people aren't familiar with, you know, change behavior. And it actually depends sort of, you know, if you're, if you're really out there leading on green or you're just trying to do a solid job catching up and so forth and, you know, be honest about that. So it was a kind of trying to burst the bubble of all the eco hype and say it's strategy. There are some different ways that, you know, and I've worked with everybody, as I say, from innocent to Cisco to you know to ngos uh, to governments and they all have different green marketing needs and the the latest book was really in many ways an update so much had changed you know every company's at the moment tying themselves in knots for instance trying to just define a purpose mm. and things like that it's, there were new topics to cover it's, a, it's it's so difficult listening to you then um and thinking back to my early days with 
advertising agencies in um, you know the early 2000s and I behind the scenes working with their facilities were reducing their footprint massively converting them to renewables getting them to stop using taxes getting them to fly less um, absolutely bringing their stationary procurement down bringing all of their operational energy and etc down but none of them wanted to talk about it at all because they're worried about greenwashing and it's still it's still the same to the day and it was a real shame because mm. i do think that there was that fine line wasn't there there were companies that were willing to shout about it and i had a very senior i think he was the ceo of one of the largest ad agencies and i'm not going to say which one was talking to another one of my clients and they had this open forum and he mm. openly said i mean this was back in 2006 2007 greenwashing is okay because it gets people on the right journey and I was a bit like, that's the problem. Well, there, there is a huge um, debate around. So one of the earliest cases of greenwashing um, that was challenged was Chevron made some commercials um, and one of them featured a butterfly sanctuary. Another was a bear conservation scheme. And it was sort of the somebody, you know, a critical journalist calculated that the average scheme featured in a TV commercial uh, was a spend of about $5,000 and they spent $5 million on the, you know, per commercial on the media spend. So there was a disproportion. The Butterfly Sanctuary turned out to be in a bay where they'd devastated nature with an oil spill some years earlier and you know there were all kinds of egregious things about it but the thing about that campaign is before it was challenged it had already won an ad industry effectiveness award and one of the reasons people greenwash is that if you're allowed to get away with it making yourself look greener than you are leaves all kinds of positive associations so for instance if you're a food company and I've done some work this year with PepsiCo, and they've got a lot of stuff about regenerative farming, as do Unilever and so forth. But And they've got a whole scheme about, for instance, supporting women farmers. As soon as you put that in, in the frame that looks like advertising, it makes your crisps look more advertising, appetizing and, and so forth. It, it has all positive associations, makes you feel less processed and more farm to fork. And, you know, they have been blessed and also moving the direction of, you know, slightly healthier options and cereal bars and, you know, sorts of other things. But the, the reason people greenwash is if it's not challenged, it kind of works because, you know, you like to buy from this lovely, friendly, you know, American oil company that's helping the, you know, the bees and the butterflies. And the um, there's a huge role to be played in this by the spiky NGO critic who are basically the traffic wardens of, egregious marketing but the reason people do it is if they let get away with it it works and in some cases it's so ridiculous that it doesn't work i mean you know cases i covered in my recent book include the palm oil council of malaysia who made a whole commercial about how the plants on their farms were absorbing carbon and supporting birds and other stuff and ignoring the fact that they're in a region with the highest deforestation for the last 10 years and that they've been driving it you know plantation farming as well as logging so um, and that was, you know, flat out banned. But it, they made a, a commercial saying, you know, enjoy our beautiful palm oil made by nature and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If you go back far enough, you know, oil was made by trees in the Jurassic period. And you, I, I was once invited on, um, I did, I turned it down, but Cana there was a Canadian TV show on the eve of the next day when the EU were about to ban shale um, 
shale oil imports and right. Canada felt that this was, you know, sort of, you know, this was just like turning down, you know, some of their beautiful exports and benefits to their economy. And they had the equivalent of Newsnight had to debate with some experts on. And I was speaking to the researcher and she said, well, we think it's a marketing and positioning thing that, you know, people call it tar sands and you see images of seals being covered of, you know, you know, other things. And actually it's what we need to do. And it's just part of the oil industry. And I said, so are you saying you need somebody to come up with an idea like beach oil because people have like positive cut associations? She said, that's exactly what we want to talk about the show. And that, again, that's sort of greenwash <laughs> and it's very strategic, yeah. which is people are trying to defend their industries and, there's a sort of corporates and businesses have a, a equivalent of the human ego where it's really hard to believe that you're the bad one. I mean, I worked for years in advertising and then, you know, was often meeting critics of advertising and had less rosy eyed view of it, but we, we still sort of believed in what we did and we, we were at the nice fringe end of it, but it's um, most people start with the premise that they're okay. And you know, that their chocolate company is largely speaking not bound up in slave labor and all kinds of other things that you know maybe that they haven't fully uncovered and that they're a perfectly nice company and they just need to sort of promote themselves a bit better and whatever they're doing that they report on sustainability is the best in the world and so forth yeah i mean you could say that um maybe by putting people into the limelight then um the critics will actually focus yeah. in on them more so it could be it could i'm not i'm advocating greenwashing but do you know what i mean it's <laughs> well there's a, there's a sort of mix because i think the it's been really interesting like i've you know i've got a book by an anthropologist written in the 70s or 80s about one of her main case examples is why environmentalists and business people will never understand each other i think there is a genuine understanding now and there was a really mature debate and you know the equivalent of this podcast the blogosphere when walmart committed to sustainability around 2006 and started making some really significant moves to move their supply chain and you know for the first time really trying to create the data set and the transparency so that they could track uh, sustainable progress and this was really difficult for people to take in but most people said well suck it and see because if something that size is moving in the right direction we should support it and there is there is that license, but you're absolutely right. For instance, when um, KitKat brought out the fair trade KitKat in the UK, then Greenpeace went all out for them and made a um, made a uh, viral video about somebody biting into a, a KitKat bar, and it was an orangutan's finger. It was sort of very, very sort of uh, distasteful. But they attacked them because uh, they'd been fighting them for years on the deforestation uh, policies. You, to be fair, Nestle would say it was more Cargill's problem than theirs, but you know, obviously they were selling the branded Yeah, well, yeah, products. still. What are the main problems in marketing today when talking about sustainability and what are organisations doing and what should they be doing? Well, my um, overwhelming hope for any client I work with is um, to sort of innovate and educate. So to actually genuinely take a lead so that you're pushing things forward and you know for the good of the species and the planet you're actually um progressing and then that can throw that should throw up education needs because if you innovate enough you have to teach people to uh, adopt electric bikes rather than a petrol car and so forth and the 
summary conclusion my first book is it's not about making normal things look green which is greenwash it's about making green things normal so you know pioneering plant-based diets uh different travel patterns um ways of doing work conversations like we're doing now but actually marketing as in you know the great consumer lifestyle adoption years from the you know the 50s to the 70s when a lot of things were new uh, marketing was genuinely teaching people to use and get their heads around new devices and new uh, new lifestyles and that you know for instance that used to be sony's company vision was to create the new lifestyles you know, and, and we, we're sort of um, I think when marketing's forward like that and when you're trying to get people to have uh, more plant protein in their diet and so forth, you're on a really sure footing and then you've just got to bring the market with you. But if you're the pioneer in that new sector, then you will take a disproportionate, you'll be the first move and take market share. So that's kind of my favourite confluence of sustainability and strategy. Uh, I'm less of a fan of we've you know made all of this investment in you know our water schemes and other stuff and now we need to make ourselves look good because you know that feels a little bit less progressive but there's a lot of difference still between the companies that are really trying and some of their competitors and it is worth trying to bake it in and get a competitive advantage and then it depends if you're in food there's a set of issues if you're in packaging there's another set of issues if you're in transportation there's another set of issues we all of us need to transition to a a sane and livable donut economics zone um and that transition is hitting almost every industry that i meet really hard as people are realizing that they have to shift a very long way and also that there are big opportunities in the direction of where we're shifting if they get there first but it is um it, you know my answer is usually it depends um i'm working for instance at the moment with or have been working with two again almost bookends in the food industry one of whom is making protein with the help of microbes you can read an article in the guardian about them they're called solar foods and they've been they're basically now just starting to bring consumer food products to market which are synthesized for bacteria so whereas the impossible burger gets its unique taste from the cooperation of biotech and yeast making a particular flavor that you get in meat called heme now they're going to be making the actual bulk the protein that way and then at the other end of the scale i've been working with one of the biggest uh food processing companies in the world looking at actually their vision and how their world is shifting that in future they're going to be less making less of the uh ingredients that go into bulk foods and fast foods and processed foods and so forth and in future making biomaterials like replacements for plastic and also pretty much a lot of the natural materials in the uh, economy and foods will be synthesized in future um, using something that looks a bit like fermentation and that's going to need an enormous input of things like sugars which you know like you know from home brewing beer you need to put some dextrose in at the start so they're really totally different companies in terms of their size profile but they're sort of both looking at the roadmap yeah like the there's a there's a think tank report that said by 2030 most of the protein will, we eat will come from these sources and the reason is that it will be 10 times cheaper than meat protein yeah or anything we can derive from things like soy so um, and interestingly like although they're coming from two opposite ends they're coming to the same they are coming to the same space i'm trying mm -hmm. to get them some of them know each other already but i'm trying to get them in a room because one of one of them is sort of bringing 
the keys to a you know an entirely new um, kind of you know a, like combination of the farm and the factory mm. and a new mm. way of synthesizing food. And the other is has a hundred years of experience of how to scale stuff and get it to global markets and um, and make it safe. And in, in, in but they have very different marketing questions. One, you know, the question was how can we make you know what what should we make? You know, there's a lot of plant based burgers out there. Should we make tofu? You know, you know what what should we actually be making with this these new proteins to sort of start getting people on board and test the concept? And at the other end, they're really trying to work out how to, you know, with anything large in transition, you have to work out these different horizons so that you're not betting it all on a future that isn't here yet. It's like the internet companies that were designed for broadband when it, when it had 56k modems, but you have to sort of stage it and move this stately large thing and i mentioned in your introduction that you've worked for some high profile organizations and governments could you share some insights into their concerns and questions about sustainability and marketing i mean the government one is different the the work i did with the british government was for a campaign called act on co2 and we were trying to figure out how you know i had colleagues in that project you know obviously people from in policy, we, the bit that I looked on was looking particularly at transportation, and we were trying to find that we were we had colleagues from something called the Nudge Unit who were looking at behavioural economics. But we were trying to figure something out. We're all still trying to figure out, which is how to um, find accessible ways that are effective in moving people's behaviour. And you know, for instance, in transportation, we've seen. A combination of various things the sort of you know the lockdown has probably done more than anything else but you know there was a, a growing flight chain movement there was a, a very rapid movement towards you know the january and more plants in diets and mainstream diets not just um hardcore vegans and vegetarians and so there were some things shifting we were trying to find the places i've i think in these complex cultural ecosystems what doesn't work very well is that sort of old style marketing of, you know, it's almost like an all over body massage. What you need to find is these acupuncture points where if you press really hard here, everything can start moving in a certain direction. Um, so that was, and I ended up doing about 30 focus groups around the country, talking to people about climate change, the Stern report, their grandchildren, their habits. Uh, I mean, one of the things we found, one of the things that people miss is, it's kind of like dieting. What you need is a moderate long-term concern. And for instance, if you and I are to meet our part of the Paris obligations, we have to make a four, just under 4% reduction per year and in compound terms. So it's not like you have to try and chop 40% out of your footprint this year. Great if you can, if you've got, you know, I, when I was first writing a book on sustainability, I realized that trying to cross-sell most of the international conferences that I spoke to with the idea that I would appear on video would do more to affect my footprint <laughs> than almost anything else. Mm. Um, and, you know, you by all means make more radical change. I mean, the difficulty like dieting is once you've done the low-hanging fruit and the easy things, mm. then uh, you come on to, you know, every year it gets slightly harder to find another 4% to throw out of the bloom. So one of our, for instance, one of our strategies in a very common sense way that came out of that was asking people to drive five less miles a week. And the reaction in the focus groups was, well, thank God for that. I thought you were going to tell me to give up my car. 
you know, and I, you know, I have to get the kids to school and I have to get to the call center where I work. And it's just like, you know, it's all right for you guys who live in a big city, but you know, where I am, you know, I can't hitchhike to work. Yeah. But if you say five less miles, we could go, well, was that time where we drive the kids to the park to get some exercise and maybe we could cycle there. People can find, so if you can find a space like that, which is achievable, and I'm sure this is true of, um, I met actually a world expert on uh, why people are getting diabetes. He studied uh, blood chemistry and early onset diabetes at Oxford University. And I said, so what can people do? He said, just cut a biscuit a day. He said about, you know, it's that drip, drip, drip of calories over 20 years onto your midriff, which will cause that and cardiovascular disease and other stuff. And no crash diet is going to get you to where you need to be. Obviously, exercise and other stuff. He said, you know, for most people, most people are having so few extra calories than they need. If they cut a biscuit a day, they could about do it. And it's sort of quite a hard space for marketing to work working because you want something really heroic, like run a marathon. But yeah. You just know that no people, no, almost no people are going to make it. Yeah, it's, it's it's that trying to promote the boring. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, there is. I mean, if you look at marketing, it was a familiar syndrome because I worked with some of the pioneers of the digital world, like Napster, when they were in the Supreme Court, and there was this fundamental opposition between capitalism, which is based on enclosing and owning some assets, you know, traditionally some land, but later some IP. So you, you know, most successful high growth businesses are surrounded by a thicket of lawyers protecting their ip but digital came out and just said well you know like napster we just want people to share stuff and you know if you can copy it you can share it and we want this to be like wikipedia that's the sort of implicit design of digital things and actually finding a mid space where capitalism could coexist with a system that's fundamentally was built by you know hippies in california in the 60s and 70s and wanted everything you know, they, they, that generation all hated Microsoft because, as one of them said, it's like selling people the washing instructions separate from the clothes. We've always just, like, it was always a bit like Linux where people just shared operating systems that worked at the back end and sort of helped each other, but it was never like a commercial thing. It was more voluntary. So it was like an enclosure of the commons. So there were things to work out between digital and that there are still you know big complex and there are huge debates over you know the effect of facebook and so forth and whether you're a product or an audience and you know your rights within that there's a similar fundamental split between you know something sustainability which you know the simple thing people say is well sustainability and environmentalists want people to buy less and marketers want people to buy more but actually within that there is a you'll know sort of working with company on the sustainability there's like a huge long checklist i went to meetings with ikea about you know one there was a volume of reporting that was about how do we know that we've got a fire extinguisher in every factory and some other safety things in places and they said at hsbc if they ever printed off their sustainability reporting it would fill two rooms so there was a big please don't print on that marketing's just trying to find that one brilliant thing it's a sort of like a cheeky personality or tone of voice, but you know, Italian sports cars are sexy. Don't worry so much about the reliability. <laughs> German German cars are reliable and dependable and solid. And you know, when the door clunks, it's like a safe. And you, it, marketing is not only the science of hyperbole and exaggeration, but they understood, you know, from the sixties that there was this thing called the unique selling proposition. Actually, one of the th- the things that I've been doing a lot with clients recently is running their sustainability through that 
I call it the unique sustainability proposition and saying, look, there's probably 20 things that you're doing that are nice uh, to do with farming, packaging, water, the way you treat employees and other stuff. But what's the one thing that you really want to drive and be known for? Like for Anita Roddick, that was against animal testing. Yeah. And she did like a ton of other things, but you knew there was some driving impetus at the heart of it. But generally speaking, sustainability comes with a huge long, you know, a, you, you get sheets and sheets of pages and you just need to find it like a really singular program, uh, like point of focus at the heart of this, if you're going to communicate it well, because it's like, if I tell you 20 things about me, you won't remember any of them. And if I just say, you know, there's this one thing like my hobbies, photography or something like that, then you have like a very particular image of, yeah. of who I am. Yeah. That's actually a really good way to put it actually. And it, it we could certainly learn off that at green element um, with working for clients and rather than saying to them, Oh, you're doing this, 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 and this, we should be marketing that actually focusing in on. And I think our listeners listening to it is not think about everything that you're doing. Just look at that one thing that you are doing really well that sets you aside from other people within your industry it's a matter of sifting because it's not you know don't stop doing all of those things mm. like uh, pepsico they did it like they were going through and reviewing their brands and they called it swords and shields which i assume they got from a consultant like me but there's a bunch <laughs> of stuff where we need to be at a good standard and that's a shield so, you know a shield means that we won't be criticized for you know for instance in their industry coca-cola's been criticized over things like labor rights and uh, trade union murders you know the sharp end of labor rights and depleting water africa's in areas of water stress in india and so forth so you, you need to in order to be a credible player and pushing your sustainability and actually marketing sustainability you need to be pretty good on everything but you need to be outstanding on something and something that really resonates with people. And, you know, I, I went through a project earlier this year with the telco and I was like, look, it's like off the charts impressive that you're going to be carbon net zero by 2025. I can't believe how you can do that. Even people like Unilever are looking 10 years later and it's brilliant. And you've had to shift a lot of infrastructure, for instance, towards renewable energy to achieve that. Brilliant. Hats off to you. However, yes, as your surveys are saying, this isn't resonating much with customers and you're not getting more people coming to you than Vodafone just because of this commitment. And we need to find a space in between that people really love. So one of the things we're exploring was people's love of green spaces. And I had a big phrase in the presentation saying people nod to climate, but they love nature. So if you can bring this down to, you know, every everywhere in and the other thing was just from a marketing point of view, they were spending all of their money actually the previous year on you know big crowd participation events, whether they were sport or music or the owners a famous uh, music and um, event arena, and so they had a marketing budget sitting there that they couldn't spend. And like, where are you know where is the zeitgeist? Where are people going this year? It's to the local park, and if you can start doing apps with gruffalo walks and tree climbing with your kids, if you can start doing stuff to actually support all the councils that are crying out for more resources because they're actual infrastructure is creaking because so many people are using it and they need investment and it's sort of but it, you need to find that the the phrase or the word i've been using is cusp and two things one is we're on the cusp of change and you need to find a tipping point you can't be credible just going actually you don't want your strategy to be with we're, we're aiming for the four percent you want to be outstanding and um and it, you know the times call for that but the c it, the, the usp is your new unique sustainability 
proposition, the sea is compelling. Like Coke's, Coca-Cola's most, according to one report I read, their most successful consumer promotion in history was the one where they put the polar bears on the can and gave the money to WWF and the Arctic Conservation. Oh, interesting. I don't know if we have that here. They had that in the States. And it was just mums and kids in America love polar bears. And every kid was coming home from school saying, mum, what are we doing to help the polar bears? And it was just a, whatever else you think of the Coca-Cola Corporation, they more and less invented consumer marketing, and they really know how to move hearts and minds. And, you know, lo and behold, white can... And, you know, genuinely money going to something that people would support. But it's finding that, finding, you know, what marketing people are really good at is um, what Solly from Futera calls um, finding the sizzle. Interesting. And so I asked John from Don't Cry Wolf a a similar question when I interviewed him. What marketing trends have you noticed in the run-up to COP26 in relation to sustainability? I mean, I, I think actually... That started a few years prior with the climate strikes. Mm. Uh, the food company that I'm working with, I first met the CEO two years ago, and I had a really big question, which is, you know, why is he meeting this guy with a beard and cardigan where he works for a, you know, a stock market listed company? And he said, I've got two Gretas living at home. And my <laughs> daughters ask me every day what we're doing on this. And we're doing a lot, but I, I feel that we should be doing more. And I want that to be part of what we're driving here. And we're a great company. And if we go after this agenda, we can be great at this too. So um, I, I think a world in which there were climate strikes by our children in 2000 cities across the world. And you know, 2019, it's hard to remember after the time we've been through since, but it was the year of street protests You know, from... Um, Latin American Spring, Catalan Independence, uh, Hong Kong, etc. It was all kicking off. And I think that and the employee side of that, like companies like Amazon came to the table because an employee climate action group brought them to the table and said, it's just disgusting that we're such a leading company and all these other tech companies like Microsoft are doing so much and we don't seem to be doing much. And Bezos was more or less shamed, it seems, internally into doing this. And the same at Google, people were really pushing for progress, more on social sustainability, um, hashtag me too, and equality and so forth. So I think those pressures were already there. And most significant companies I know, like the large companies were starting this year, like one of my clients said their CEO gave an all staff address over video and he said, I want you to focus, and they're a global travel company, I want you to focus on our two key priorities for the year. And I would have expected that to be, you know, rebuilding after lockdown, you know, we're a travel company. And he said, it's um, sustainability and diversity. Those, If we get those right, every time you're sitting down to write a piece of code, think how are we moving forward and taking the lead on sustainability and diversity. So I think, and, you know, you'll know that thousands now of companies have committed to science-based targets and, you know, some have taken, for instance, the Amazon 10 years early pledge, which was one of the things that came out positively when they did come to this agenda. And I think there is a long queue of companies that committed to this that will want to use the platform, just like anybody in sport would want to use the platform of an Olympics. Uh, a lot of people want to use the platform of the public interest at that time to socialize what they're doing, bring their stakeholders to it and so forth. And but I've, I've seen that. I mean, really, I think climate concerns in the boardroom between about 2009 and 2017 looked a bit more shaky. 
and yeah. the, but there's been a fundamental re-engagement and yeah, a new level absolutely. of interest and, and also driven by the great triad of investors you know the everybody from black rocks to the mm. you know the millennials with their their sort of inherited wealth you know wanting yet yeah, sustainability to be at the heart of what they invest in employees and consumers increasingly going do you know what i don't want that yogurt in the plastic pot you're gonna to have to sort something out because i just don't want to see all this trash and the asthma documentary and fa- finally uh, one last question about uh, i noticed on linkedin that you you amongst others um put up the picture of the g7 people watching the air show and the comments that greta thunberg talked about of really they've got an air show and a climate you know i mean it is absolutely ridiculous and we've talked a lot about um business and what businesses are doing um in order to reduce climate change or mitigate climate change and you have worked in government what are your thoughts around around that is it business that's leading the way uh yes definitely business is leading the way i think there are really progressive voices and examples emerging in business and they've got a freedom of movement which they haven't had i think things like the renewed american commitment to something like the green new deal a massive green economy infrastructure investment in europe and america will make a huge difference so government has to drive that and can also the you know the government of california has sort of um driven everything from emission standards in cars to recycle content in paper by setting regulations and companies go well california is such a big company we might as well come uh, such a big region we might as well take their standards and then like market everything to the world based on those standards so it's not the governments don't have a strong role to play listen you've got like amazing political leaders in this generation like uh, hern in uh, new zealand so you know there are really strong positive leaders um and, you know, let's see where Biden gets to with the political situ- situation in America. And they've clearly got a role to play. But I think, you know, in a way, it's simply an innovation challenge. And it's an odd kind of innovation challenge because we could get more or less get there with existing technology. If we stopped R&D, we've got enough solutions, nature-based solutions and other solutions to sort of get there with what we have. But it's still a challenge which requires a galvanizing of effort behind an initiative i i really loved the speech which uh what was his name sam the um ceo of walmart gave in 2006 when they were setting out on this agenda and he talked about his experience in his country's experience his company's experience of hurricane katrina and he said i saw how we could be you know, as a company serving our communities, sheltering people, getting emergency supplies, keeping people safe. And it was such a wonderful role to take in those communities where we live. And I want us to be that kind of company every day and every week and every year. And he said, look, climate change is his his phrase, just a slow Katrina. Mm. If we, as Greta says, realize that our house is on fire, then you can respond. And what business can do, both large business and entrepreneurial business, is bring that sort of galvanized, energetic impact player force to shifting things fast. Because we, most of the models, you know better than me, say that we can make it, but it's almost technically, technically we can make it, but we'd have to make an extraordinary shift compared to business as usual. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, welcome. (laughs) 
BBC Radio John, as my missus calls it. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks for listening to the Sustainable Business Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's content, why not join our post-podcast discussion in our online community at sustainabilitysolved.org. We'll be sharing ideas and collaborating on sustainable marketing with our members. Join now and find a space to collaborate with like-minded professionals, learn more about sustainable business and inspire others to become more environmental. We also have an important update for our listeners. We'll soon be changing the name of this podcast to Sustainability Solved to better reflect the content of our podcast. You will still be able to access all our original podcasts on your preferred platform. And if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you subscribe so you get every episode and don't forget to follow Green Element on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram.